Wikipedia entry for writer's block currently suggests five distinct causes for the phenomenon, ranging from physiological and neurological basis to negative self-beliefs and feeling of incompetence. None seem to apply to the inability of Charlottesville community engagement to swiftly write up all of the desired stories in the timeliest of manners. Time is required to sift through all of the elements to see what segments result, and here's what we have for February 16th, 2024. I'm Sean Tubbs, understanding there are no more than seven days in a week. On today's program, the Rivanna Water and Sewer Authority announces a pump station has been completed in the wake of a January 9th incident that overwhelmed the system, leading to untreated sewage entering Morse Creek. The Thomas Jefferson Planning District Commission's board learns about and then endorses two efforts to get people around the area without a car. And Charlottesville City Council has adopted the manual to guide the development review process under the new zoning code and allows for more projects to be considered under the old one. In today's first subscriber-supported public service announcement, Camp Albemarle has for over 60 years been a wholesome, rural, rustic, and restful site for youth activities, church groups, civic events, and occasional private programs. Located on 14 acres on the banks of the Mormons River near Free Union, Camp Albemarle continues as a legacy of being a civilian conservation corps project that sought to promote the importance of rural activities. Are you looking to escape and reconnect with nature? Consider holding an event where the natural beauty of the grounds will provide a venue to suit your needs. Visit their website to view the gallery and learn more, campalbemarrow.org. The regional body that processes and treats sewage in urbanized Albemarle and Charlottesville has announced that a temporary pump station is now in place that can handle up to 50 million gallons a day of wastewater. Here is a something from the fact sheet on the Rivanna Water and Sewer Authority's website. On January 9, 2024, high rain and wastewater flows may have damaged equipment in the Rivanna pump station causing it to malfunction, become submerged, and discontinue operations. This resulted in several wastewater overflows from manholes in and around Riverview and Darden Tau parks. The pump station carries sewage from North Charlottesville and Albemarle County to the Moores Creek Advanced Water Resource Recovery Facility, part of the overall wastewater treatment plant run by the RWSA. Here's some more from the fact sheet. The pump station lifts wastewater received at Morse Creek vertically about 100 feet so that it can be treated and eventually, once treatment is completed, released into Morse Creek. A divided RWSA board of directors approved the location for this pump station in December 2011, as I reported for the time for Charlottesville Tomorrow. City officials supported this alternative because it allowed a similar facility next to Riverview Park to be decommissioned and not replaced on site. After the flood, RWSA staff installed a temporary pump station that could handle up to 10 million gallons a day, but that wasn't enough. And for one period of 26 hours, untreated wastewater was discharged into Moores Creek. Staff continued to investigate what happened to cause the malfunction. More 
in the future. There are many conversations and discussions in this community about reducing greenhouse gas emissions, and one way to do that is to provide alternatives to driving alone. One available tool for those who may want to change their behavior is managed locally by the Thomas Jefferson Planning District Commission, a regional planning body. Here is Sarah Pennington, the coordinator of a program called Rideshare. Rideshare is a transportation or travel, those words can be used interchangeably, demand management program um, that is through the Virginia Department of Rail and Public Transportation. The rideshare program straddles Afton Mountain and also includes the Central Shenandoah Planning District Commission, which covers Waynesboro and Stanton. Every year, the TJPDC has to apply for a commuter assistance program grant from the DRPT to cover their costs. It is a use of strategies to inform and encourage um, travelers to maximize the efficiency of our transportation systems, leading to improved mobility, reduced congestion, and lower vehicle emissions. Rideshare provides access to resources offered by the DRPT, including matching with carpools and vanpools, all managed by an app called Connecting VA. We also work with employers in the area to help them with programs. Many have parking struggles or, you know, want to, you know, be more green. That might involve working with employers to develop a traffic reduction program. Just before the pandemic, Pennington began working on ways to encourage telecommuting. People who participate in the app can also participate in competitions of sorts. As you find an alternative form of transportation that works for you, you can use this system to log those trips and earn rewards. So it kind of gives you like a little bit of a carrot or um, a reward for, for doing that. Telework trips count too. I earn a lot of points with my two days teleworking. <laughs> those rewards can eventually be exchanged for gift cards and other items. Rideshare also manages 27 privately owned park and ride lots throughout the area. And if someone has a ride that doesn't work out, there's a program to guarantee a ride home via a taxi or an Uber or a Lyft. They don't have their car. What do they do? They call us and we make sure that we get them back to where their car is located. Other rideshare initiatives include participation in Bike to Work Week and assistance with marketing the Afton Express between Stanton and Charlottesville. The TJPDC Board of Commissioners approved the resolution to ask for funding in fiscal year 25. Rideshare is not the only TJPDC program intended to help people get around without a car. There's a new program that's just getting underway to assist those people with particular needs to find access to rides. Lucinda Shannon is a transportation planner with the TJPDC. As people age and they can no longer drive, they depend on others for transportation, especially in rural areas. The state, the Blue Ridge Health District, and health service providers like Sentara and UVA uh, have all identified a need for additional transportation for services um, for older adults and people with disabilities. To help address the issue, TJPDC has obtained funding to start a program called Mobility Management, for the first year, the service will start as a partnership with the Jefferson Area Board for Aging and others. 
we started a center that uh, people can call in. There's a website and a phone number, and you can call in and get a transportation counselor. So it's not just a referral. It's working with the person to help schedule a ride and find solutions to meet their transportation needs. A press release announcing the service, dated January 11, 2024, has that number at 888-879-7379. The TJPDC website does not yet list the phone and reads, Content coming soon. That's because the project is in a soft launch, according to TJPDC Executive Director Christine Jacobs. Because we didn't want to overwhelm the system without the resources we need. A wider rollout is expected as a marketing campaign is developed with a consultant. Shannon said based on input to the program so far, a lot of the needs for people are medically based, such as people who need to get from their homes to physical therapy appointments. A grant application for additional funding was submitted on February 1st. If awarded, there would be a second staff person added. We'll work more with John and Kat to advertise and improve their services. We'll foster and support volunteer driver programs. We'll work with partners like UVA and the Blue Ridge Health District to improve transportation for students with disabilities and non-emergency medical transportation, especially for people living in rural areas. Shannon said one program in the future could be to train people how to use the existing bus systems. Jacob said the intent is to avoid duplication of services. Our goal is to do better coordination and better information and data sharing. Where are the gaps that exist and how can we try to close those gaps with our providers? The TJPDC board agreed to support that grant application as well. There's still more to come from that TJPDC meeting. There's a lot out there, you know. You are listening to Charlottesville Community Engagement. In today's second subscriber-supported public service announcement, the Charlottesville Jazz Society and WTJU want you to know about a concert coming up on Sunday, February 25th at 4 p.m. at the Front Porch in downtown Charlottesville. Multi-read player and composer Ken Vandermark will play Charlottesville for the first time with his newest band, Edition Redux. With his massive recording history and constant touring, Ken Vandermark has become a vital steward of modern jazz and improvisational music, both in Chicago and around the world. In addition to Vandermark, who plays saxophones and clarinet with Addiction Redux, this quartet is comprised of Arez Dessel on keyboards, Lily Finnegan on drums, and Beth McDonald on tuba and electronics. They represent the next wave of Chicago's creative music scene. Tickets are available at a link in the newsletter for the show. The concert will be followed immediately by the Charlottesville Jazz Society's Local Jazz Spotlight Series at Miller's around the corner from the front porch. This month's featured band is Peter Richardson's Alegria Trio, featuring Latin and Brazilian-style jazz for no cover, 6 to 9 p.m. Don't forget to check out the event calendar at seavillejazz.com to learn what's coming up this week and into the future. That's all that jazz, Charlottesville Jazz Society. Two segments to go today, although you could really probably think of them as one big one. 
On Monday, Charlottesville's new development code will go into effect, and everyone involved in the world of land use will begin using a new set of rules intended to make it easier for developers to build more residential units throughout the city's 10.4 square miles. On February 5, 2024, Council took two actions required before new applications can technically be processed. One is the adoption of the Affordable Dwelling Unit Manual, which I wrote about earlier this week if you want to go back and read or listen to that story. But Council also adopted a new manual to guide how staff in the Department of Neighborhood Development Services will process new applications into permits. Here is James Fries the Director of Neighborhood Development Services. Our objective here is to balance between what is needed to complete the review, both in terms of submissions and process, and while also paying attention to and trying not to increase the cost of compliance. So we recognize, particularly for smaller projects, that the cost of compliance is, can be a substantial cost, and we want to make sure that we are addressing that issue. Fries said the city and the community will be learning about the development code as it goes into effect, and changes to the manual are highly likely. The manual introduces the new component of the development plan, which Fries said provides a chance for the city to check to see if the zoning for a particular property allows whatever the developer has planned. And we have a particular interest in seeing those development plans uh, submitted early and giving us an opportunity to approve those early. The Planning Commission got a chance to review this manual in January, as I reported at the time. All of these changes come at the same time that the city has a new way for members of the public to review permits. There's a link to that in the newsletter too. So anyone can view the projects that are in front of the city through our new permit portal. So you can pull that open, see the plans, see what's, see what's coming. Um, and then of course you can submit questions directly to the uh, Neighborhood Development Services office if you have questions about the project or that kind of thing. Another new process will be the provisions that require a permit if a property owner wants to remove a tree with a diameter in excess of 8 inches. To find out the rules, you have to look at the standards in Section 4.91 of the Development Code as well as Section 2.61 of the Development Process Manual. The purpose of the tree permit at the end of the day is to ensure compliance. So it, so any replacement plan is really towards the goal of, of maintaining or restoring compliance with the ordinance. So the main thing there is our canopy requirements, right? So if I'm taking down trees and it knocks me below my canopy requirement on my site, then what's the level of planting necessary to restore that canopy requirement? Another new feature of the code is there will no longer be site review conferences that members of the public can attend to ask questions of developers. These have existed for buy-right projects, but will not exist when the city's development code takes effect. Here is city planner Matt Alphalay. The original community meetings that we've been doing for years was mainly in place to let the community know something was going on. Our new software system will really help with that. Alphalay said community meetings can often lead to animosity between developers and members of the public because many requested changes can't be made or are not required to be made. By the time you're having a community meeting for a buy-right development, you've come in with your plan, you've submitted your plan, you're starting to go through that process. And now most projects will be developed by right. 
Unless a project needs approval by the Entrance Corridor Review Board or the Planning Commission or the Board of Architectural Review, the only community meetings will be for projects in excess of 50,000 square feet, and that will be to allow public review of the Transportation Demand Management Plan. Stay tuned, because I'm going to cover all of it. When Charlottesville City Council adopted the new development code on December 18th, they set a date of August 31st for when site plans would be evaluated under the new zoning as opposed to the old one. On February 5th, a representative from the Charlottesville Area Development Roundtable asked council to reconsider for five applications that were submitted after August 31st that would require significant revisions in order to comply with the new rules. Those five projects represent a total of 1,062 new housing units. Here is Valerie Long, a member of CADRA, an attorney with the firm Williams Mullen. Each of these involves a significant amount of investment on the part of the property owners and the applicants and their design team. It takes a lot of money and time and resource to get a site plan application to the stage at which it is deemed complete by the city staff and accepted for review. Long said none of the developers were notified before December 13th that submissions made after September 1st would be reviewed under the code. She said communication during the Seville Plans Together initiative was always effective, but this question was one that the development community had wanted to know. We were asking the question throughout, never were provided any information about when that would be. The information did come, but very close to the adoption date, as related by another member of CADRE. Here is Kelsey Schlein, a planner with SHIMP Engineering. On December 13th, we were given notice that staff had recommended adopting an 831 cutoff date. Um, this was just incredibly problematic and somewhat disheartening as we had asked um, uh, several times throughout the, the review process of, you know, can we still move forward with pro projects where, you know, we, we know the new ordinance is, is coming, but we've had these applications that have been in the works. The matter came up at the very end of the agenda and was not listed in advance. City Attorney Jacob Stroman said there was no legal requirement for the developers to be told of the new date, but that the earlier date should not have come as a surprise. The state of Virginia law on what happens in a general rezoning with respect to vested rights could not be more well established. Those who are making decisions about moving projects forward uh, during a period when the, when the city is considering a zoning amendment or a comprehensive rezoning, are fully aware of that law. On December 18th, city council had been split three to two on setting the cutoff date of August 31st. Councilor Michael Payne stood by that decision. The rules are, are very clear. The rules that uh, people who are paid well to closely call the, follow the rules all know. Under the old and the new zoning, developers can pay into the Charlottesville Affordable Housing Fund if they don't want to guarantee income-restricted units in their projects. Payne's main objection was that these five applications might have to pay less under the older setup. City Councilor Natalie Oshrin was not yet in office when the vote was taken, but she was in the audience that night. I thought it was very strange that it was retroactive and it was a 3-2 vote, and if I had been up here that day, it would have been a 3-2 vote in the other direction. 
Payne disagreed with the usage of the word retroactive, arguing that state law allowed council to have picked the August 31st date. If we have projects come to us, if we change the uh, effective date, and they're coming for a special use permit or a rezoning that is not permitted under that old existing zoning, and they say, but your future land use map says this, and they're not following the affordable housing rules, what is our position going to be? Payne said 1,062 new units would require over 100 affordable units under the new zoning, and the city stands to lose quite a lot here. However, when the vote was taken, council moved 3-2 to to rescind their previous date and change it to December 18th. This part is not in the newsletter, but I'm just talking off the top of my head. Those five projects are listed in a graphic in this newsletter. They're pretty interesting ones. Uh, And I would point out that when I went to go look for one of those projects, uh, specifically one on Seminole Trail, US-29, the site plan was not available in that package. I have seen, I have checked to see if it's there, because I'd like to write about that. But not today. But for now, so long, number 637. I officially only have one more story to tell from the February 5th, 2024 City Council meeting, but it will have to wait until the next newsletter. I want to hear and write up a 30-minute discussion about the city's budget, fiscal year 25. This was a discussion not on the agenda and one I have not seen written up anywhere else, so I'll do it. There is so much to write about, and I'm dedicated to doing what I can. Hundreds of you are supporting me in that effort, and there will be progress toward expanding capacity to get even more information out to you. I'm grateful for those who are paying, and I'm grateful to be part of this community. If you'd like to join in, consider a paid Substack subscription. Ting will match your initial subscription because they're also interested in building community. And if you purchase Ting and use the promo code COMMUNITY, you're going to get some stuff that's listed in the newsletter. We're almost out of time because here is the chime. Goodbye.